Our reading today is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. If you have one of the Bibles that was provided here at Ecclesia, it's page 843. We're going to start in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. Many years ago, I got a book out of a book club that I pulled down from the library, and uh, it, it was a book that whose opening lines have haunted me ever since I first read it. And in fact, as I was thinking about this message, even though it was many years ago that I read this book, I, it, I couldn't help but reflect on the opening lines of this book. It's a book written, surprisingly, about the prophet Jeremiah. It's a story about his life, and it's written by Eugene Peterson, and it's a book called Run With the Horses, and it began with these words. I opened it up and it said, the puzzle is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. <laughs> it just caught my attention. He was saying, it's not that we're evil people, but why do we live such mediocre lives? Why do we live so you know, self-absorbed lies? It reminded me of the opening words to Henry David Thoreau's book, uh, Walden, when he wrote this. He said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Have you heard that line before? The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. The puzzle is, why do we human beings live such mediocre lives? Why do we live so much less than what we really even want to be? Why don't we even live to the fullest of our own desires? You see, have you ever wondered about that? I have. Have you ever wondered why we tend to live such mundane, mediocre lives? <laughs> uh, have you ever wondered how it is that we tend sometimes to fritter our time on trivial pursuits? We even play games called Trivial Pursuit. You know, I don't know if you th think about this, but really, too many of our lives are not lived about things that really matter. We know at the end of the day what matters at the end of the week, but we find ourselves having spent hours and hours watching games. We can't even remember who won when they're done. Have you noticed that, guys? Let's admit it. Let's see, who won the World Series a week or so ago? I watched every one of those games. Yeah, I know. It's fresh enough to know that Boston won it, right? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, uh, yeah. And we, we get so involved in those things. You know, and again, I love sports as well, but how often is it that we place such a high value on things that matter somewhat little and such little value on things that matter most? Yeah. Why is it that our families get the leftover of our attention and not the best of our lives? Why is it that many of us act nicer to the people we work with than we do the people we live with? The people we work with are not coming to our funeral 40 years from now, but the people we live with are, right? Why is it? We have but one life to live, but how much of it is lived to maximum, maximum impact? How much of it is lived really well? I don't know about you, but I want to live well. I just want to live well. I want to live a life that matters. I want to rise above the pettiness of our self-centered, materialistic, self-absorbed culture, but I get stuck too. Peterson wrote in that book a little bit later, he said, we continue to have an unquenchable thirst for wholeness, a hunger for righteousness. What does it mean, he asks, to be a real man, a real woman? What shape does mature, authentic humanity take in everyday life? It's a good question. What does it mean to be a real man, a real woman? What shape does mature, authentic humanity take in everyday life? Now, in a very real sense, this little book of Colossians is written to answer that question. It's written to help these ordinary believers in a small town along the river Lycus. The name of the town was Colossae. It was neighborhood to Hierapolis and Laodicea. It was just a little town where a little church had started. And the apostle Paul wrote this book to help them understand what it meant to live a full, meaningful, maximum impact life, a truly human lives. The whole book of Colossians is help us to, well, he wants them to see that if you want to have a truly meaningful, truly sincere, truly human life, put Jesus Christ at the center of it. These people were already Christians. They had learned about salvation. They had learned to trust in Jesus Christ, just like many or most of you all have, but they were in danger of putting Christ more on the periphery of their life and thinking that maybe it was this next religious book, this next religious experience, this next thing that would give them true life. And the apostle Paul wants them to know, just as Jesus was the one who had rescued them out of darkness, Jesus is the one who can turn on the true humanity, ignite the spirit within them, make them truly alive, make them really new creation. The whole book is kind of about this. It's got theology in it at the beginning, like we often see in the letters of Paul. It's got practice at the end. And sometimes we think, well, I want to study the theology, or I'm not interested in the theology. I want to talk about the practice, the to-do list. But the apostle Paul wants these wedded together, because what you believe is how you behave. Don't tell me what you believe. <laughs> Show me how you behave, and we will know what you believe. You see? So if you want to really change your fundamental behavior, you've got to change the way you think and what you believe. Now, they are wedded together, but you've got to think right if you're going to live right. So in the first couple of chapters of Colossians, he tells them how to think right. And in the last couple of chapters, he tells them how to live right. We need 
both. It's in his whole book, but we see him at the front part of this book, as was his common theme. Just he sort of sets the themes that he's going to talk about. He talked about faith and love and hope, a faith and love that were grounded in hope, which was grounded in the gospel, which was bearing fruit in their lives. And then he moves in this ninth verse, in the verse which uh, Richard read for us, he moves into a prayer. And most all of his books begin with a prayer. And very often, when he has his prayer at the beginning of these books, we can see what really matters to him. We can see where he is going. We may not quite understand it till we've gone all the way through the book and come back to it, but we see it there in seed form. And so we see in the early on in this prayer, he says in the in in verse nine and verse ten, I'll just read verses nine and ten, and I'll talk about verse ten for a moment. And so, from the day we heard, that is to say, heard about these people and following Christ, from the day we heard, remember every time the wind blows, that's the spirit, right? The spirit blows where he lists. Okay, so every time the wind blows, uh, that's what you think. Oh, there's the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may filled with, be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here you see in seed form the connection between thinking and acting. In verse 9, he tells them that he wants them to think right. He wants them to know the right things. He knows that if he knows the right, if they know the right things, they will begin to live the right ways. Notice verse 9. I pray, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I want you to understand what God is up to. Then he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and understanding and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here we see the theme which will characterize this whole book. He wants them to think right because he knows that if they think right, they will begin to live right. We see that in verse 10 that God wants our lives to flourish, to be fruitful. He wants us to live well. God is not just interested in getting you saved and making your life miserable so that somehow if you make it through this life, you can go and enjoy a good life later on. No, God wants to turn you into the fully human being he created you to be. He wants us to live fruitful, productive, exciting, God-pleasing lives. This pleases God when we live to our maximum human potential. You see, we sometimes have turned that thing into, you, all, God just wants to make, make you miserable and it makes him happy when it makes you miserable, right? I'll be pleased if you're not having any fun. Well, what kind of father is that? No, it pleases him when we become everything he made us to be. If you've ever made anything, like a model airplane or something that's supposed to fly, you throw it and it flies beautifully, it makes you happy, right? Remember that, Brian? You used to do that? You probably did it last week, right? No. <laughs> You love when your creation works like it's supposed to work. And wouldn't a plane enjoy if a plane had feelings? 
the feeling of buoyancy and floating on air. See, the plane has joy when it works, right? And the creator has joy when it works, right? It makes God happy when your life goes right. Isn't that good to know? Yeah, so when you see the to-dos of the scripture, don't think of them as these are the things, the rules God made up to make you unhappy so you couldn't enjoy true life. When he says to you, be faithful to your wife, for example, he's not doing that because it will make your life worse. He's doing it because it will make your life better, right? You'll be flying smooth, all right? And all of this grows as we, occurs as we grow in our knowledge of him. I know you want to live well. None of us want to live substandard lives. And so uh, this book gives us some hints. And this text even now gives us sort of a hint. Remember I said the prayers kind of allude to where Paul is going. So we're going to ask just a couple of simple questions. You can jot them down in your worship notes if you like. Um, and of course the text is always printed on the back side of your worship notes as well if you want to follow the text. Excuse me a moment. Thank you for that water, Tanner. I really appreciate it. The first question is this. Well, let me, let me, let me set it up by this way. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants us to get a glimpse of all the things about God which are true. So we want to ask ourselves the question, what is the foundation for a flourishing life? What is the foundation for a flourishing life? You know how it is. You planted your landscape, if you did at your house, and you put all those trees in all at the same time. You gave them all the same water, but some of those trees are flourishing. Some of those plants are flourishing. They look healthy and alive and beautiful. What is the foundation for a flourishing life? Now, the Apostle Paul has begun a prayer, and he really doesn't get to the foundation until end of this prayer, okay? And so I made a last-minute choice to kind of change and put the end at the front. And so I want you to see the foundation of a flourishing life is found in verses 12 to 14. Now, let me just read the text and help you to see how we get there, okay? And so from the day, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, and he tells us his prayer, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge, excuse me, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, when we read that, because we're selfish people, we think he's praying. I'm praying that God will tell you what job you're supposed to take. I'm wondering about that, and God wants to tell you his will. You see, we tend to think it's just about that. No, it's speaking much more grandiose than that. I want you to see what God's general will and purpose is for the whole world. Okay, I want you to see that. He hasn't told us what it is yet, all right? But he says what will happen when we understand it. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Because when you understand God's will, you will have a fruitful, fulfilled, flourishing life. And he says, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience 
with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in the last three verses, we see the first of what are two foundations for a flourishing life. Why is it that we can have a fruitful, fulfilled life? We can have a fruitful, fulfilled life because we have been rescued from that bad old life because of what Jesus did. God has given us the opportunity to live a new life. And so if you're taking notes, here's what you want to put there. The first foundation for a flourishing life is a, and I'll explain this in a moment, a new exodus through Christ's death. You see? A new exodus through Christ's death. Look what he's saying here. Giving thanks to God, the Father, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. We see the word inheritance of the saints in life. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the dear son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now what Paul is doing is reminding them of an ancient Israelite story, a story of deliverance, the Exodus. You know about the Exodus, right? The people in Israel were in Egypt. They had been trapped in Egypt. They were stuck there. They were slaves. And God, through his mercy, sent a deliverer. His name was Moses. And Moses brought them out under God's direction, brought them out and through the Red Sea and promised to them an inheritance, the promised land. They were brought out of darkness, land of Egypt, into light promised land. See, what the Bible teaches to us is that Jesus has done for us what Moses did for the people of Israel. You see, Jesus has brought us out of darkness into light. Now, this may seem a little opaque to you, but if you think about that story, and if you know something about it, you can read about it in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, those three books of the Bible, which are fascinating reading. What happened was these people had been living in slavery for 400 years. The only life they knew was the life of being Egyptian slaves. That's all they knew. And God brought them out and said, I want to be your God. You will be my people. I will take care of you. You follow me. You're set free. And you know what happened? No sooner had they been going down that road than they began to think that life had been better back in Egypt. Does some of you remember that story? I mean, they couldn't find water. They said, oh, man, we had plenty of water in Egypt. Meow, meow, meow. In fact, ten times, the Bible says, they murmured and griped. Oh, couldn't we just go back to Egypt? We had leeks and onions. This was good stuff. Life was much better out there. We weren't dying of thirst and hungry. And, and that's what the Lord gives them manna. And I always loved that old Keith Green song. Any of you guys old enough to remember Keith Green, the singer? A couple of you. He had a great song called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, you know? Any of you guys remember that song? No, one or two. Yeah, old folks like me. And they, he, they, they, got, they got so sick and tired of this manna bread. And his song says, manna cakes, but manna bread, manna waffles. We're just sick and tired of manna, you know? We want to go back to Egypt. And they had a hard time adapting to the free life which God had blessed them with. The application is for us. God, if he has brought you to faith in him, has rescued you. He's brought you out of 
Egypt. You no longer have to be defined by the size of your paycheck or the size of your dress or the size of your income or the size of your car or the size of anything else you want big, right? You don't have to worry about that because God has made you he has brought you into a new way of living. But what happens? We're in Egypt, or we're in the, the wilderness moving towards the promised land. The inheritance still lies ahead of us, and we get tired. We like life better. Our friends are all living a certain way, and we're stuck in me mediocre, mundane, fruitless lives. Apostle Paul wants us to know, no. You can give thanks. You've been brought out of that darkness, brought into a kingdom of life. You have been delivered. God has redeemed you. God has made you one of his own. So the foundation for a flourishing life is to find your identity, first of all, in the new exodus through Christ's death. Jesus gave his life. He died for us so that we could have new life. The foundation for a flourishing life is that God has delivered us and made us a part of his kingdom. The second thing is, and I only mention this very briefly, that is God has brought us a new creation through Christ's resurrection. This goes beyond our text for the day, so we'll talk about it more next week. But if you looked at verse 15 and following, and I did print it on the back of your, your message notes, we see about Jesus, notice the emphasis on creation. For he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus is bigger than any social system, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be pre eminent. You see, God has made us new creation in Christ. God has put his spirit within you. And so the foundation for our flourishing life is to know and believe that God has rescued me. God has changed me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things are become new. That's what you got to know. He's writing this book so that they will know those things, believe those things, because if they really believe those things, they will begin to live differently. They will live like the free sons and daughters of the king of the universe rather than as the slaves to the cultural systems of our day. So the foundation for a flourishing life, which is at the end of this topic here, is the new exodus we receive through Christ's deliverance, the new deliverance we have through Christ's death, we could say it as well that way, the new deliverance we have through Christ's death, the new exodus and the new creation. A lot of us don't really believe that, don't really believe that God has changed me. I remember a time of serious, serious temptation for me and I won't go into the story only for time reasons, but there was a time when a bad choice was right in front of me and it has everything but been done. You ever been there? You have. It is no place fun to be. You know. You know it's there. It's happening. It's just a matter of time. And I remember stewing, stewing, stewing. There's more to the story, but stewing, stewing, sweating almost. <laughs> and praying in the middle of that and 
in my mind, almost like an audible voice, was simply these words. You can leave. It just, I, of course I could. But I hadn't, you see, I was stuck in the wrong story, right? You can leave. You don't have to stay in that place. You can't go. And before I had a chance to question it, I got up and went. You know what I'm saying? I wish I could tell you I always obeyed that voice, but I don't. Two natures beat within our breast. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one we love, the one we hate, the one we feed will dominate, right? You feed it, it gains power. You obey the spiritual nature which is given to you, it loses power. And some of us need to have that voice that says, you can go. It doesn't have to be that way. The script has not been written towards that end. There's a new story. It's a gospel story. You can go. So go. You see, that's the foundation for a, nourish, uh, a flourishing life. You can see why I put that point first, because I wanted to make sure I didn't rush it at the end. Because it's the foundation, and we will talk about that in the next couple of weeks as we look through these texts. What is the description of a flourishing life? Second question. What is the description of a flourishing life? Two quick items. Number one, a flourishing life walks worthy. Number two, a flourishing life bears fruit. Notice what it says. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Basically, that means, as I said already earlier, it means you live the full human potential that God created you to be. You know, you know a lot of people are surprised to discover that I was scared to death to ever sing publicly until I was about 25 years old, literally. And there's a long story behind this, and I won't bore you with that. Well, I don't think it's a boring story. It's a pretty fascinating story, but you, we got more things to talk about. But, you know, I had a desire to sing, but I had this fear of failing that made me never, ever sing, you see? And and what's happened for me with regard to ministry is that because of some rather uh, exciting things that happened to me when I went to college, I ended up finding myself using musical gifts and developing them. And I found that there was such joy that came like a plane flying on the wings of the wind, you see? And that gave God joy because he wanted me to do that. And it gave me joy, too. You see, when you walk worthy, don't put a bunch of rules and lists and all that sort of thing like God's checking you off. That's not the story of grace at all. No, God just wants you to be. You guys are parents, right? And you know, it's so tragic when our kids live less than their potential. Oh, we know there's so much in there, right? And we feel so much joy. That's what makes God happy. The reality is your life pleases God. It's not just Jesus who is pleasing to the Father, but we all are pleasing to the Father because we gave Jesus our sin. He gave us his righteousness. So if God is pleased with Jesus, guess how he feels about you? He's happy about you. Yeah. All right. A flourish, so it walks worthy, pleasing the Lord. And number two, a flourishing life bears 
fruit lives fruitfully, flourishing, letting the things, the life within come out of us. That's the description of a flourishing life. And then thirdly, what is the prescription for a flourishing life? What is the prescription for a flourishing life? Well, there are three things that I can just mention briefly that Paul prays for in this prayer. He prays, first of all, that we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That we'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to get a clear picture of the vision God has for them. And that's what I've tried to do in the first half of this message. It's to give you a clear picture. God's not mad at you. He loves you. God's not disappointed in you. He's forgiven in you. God has a great future for you. He has brought you out of the darkness into light. He wants you to live like children of light. He's given you a new life for those ashes of the old life. He wants you to live under the influence of that new life. Yeah, Paul prays that we would understand the will of God, the knowledge of God's will. That's the first thing that he prays. And then secondly, Paul prays that we will be strengthened with God's power. Oh, we will need God's power because the power of the evil self is so strong. We will need God's power. And Paul prays, verse 10, 11, May you be strengthened with all his power according to whose might? His might. Do you think God has enough strength to help you make it through the next temptation? Do you think God could handle that temptation? Of course you do. He's saying God's power is available to you. He's whispering in your voice, You can leave. You can say no. You can go. Or he's saying, you can speak up, you can confess, you can tell the truth. He's saying it, it's there, his power's there for you. According to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience. Endurance means I need endurance for the events that are trying to me. <laughs> endurance relates to events, situations. Patience relates not to events, but to guess what? People, right? We need patience because people make us frustrated. We have that through God. We need endurance because events make us frustrated. So Paul prays that we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that we will be strengthened with God's power. And then verse 12, Paul prays that we will be thank you, thankful for God's rescue. Thankful for God's rescue. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, full of all endurance and patience. I put a comma here, comma, with joy giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because he has rescued me, delivered me, because he's given me new life. I know those are true before I feel them in my life because I believe in him more than I believe in me, right? He prays that we will be thankful for God's rescue. Well, let's close our time with some thanksgiving for God's rescue. God has come to us and brought us out of the land of Egypt, and he's bringing us to the promised land. As the Red Sea was like death and resurrection for the people of Israel, so the cross is death and resurrection for Jesus. As they traveled toward that promised land, now free and learning how to live in that freedom, we too are traveling through that freedom 
learning how to live like the people of God until the final day, the day of the new heavens and the new earth, that final inheritance. And he has brought to us, it says, redemption and forgiveness. So let's take a few moments to thank him for redemption. That means to purchase what had formerly belonged to you. How did Jesus purchase, God purchase what had formerly belonged to him? He gave his life. That's what the communion is about. And if you've not responded to this good news about Jesus, get started there. Begin to believe that God has brought redemption through Christ's death. And God wants to make you new through Christ's resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great story. It's such a better story than the American dream. It's such a better story than just amassing wealth. It's such a better story than living for the pleasure of the moment. It's such a better story than living a mediocre life. No, help us to bear fruit, to live flourishing, fruitful. Help us to live lives that are lived well, to soar like you made us to soar. And we thank you that you are willing to pay the ultimate price for that to occur. We pray that each of us would respond in faith to your love and receive your forgiveness and redemption. In his name.